Would you grab your Bibles, please, and turn to John 17? And we're going to read 20 through 26. I do not ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word, that they all may be one, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. The glory that you have given me, I have given to them, that they may be one even as we are one. I in them, and you in me, that they may become perfectly one, so that the world may know that you sent me and love them even as you loved me. Father, I desire that they also, whom you have given me, may be with me where I am, to see my glory that you have given me, because you loved me before the foundation of the world. O righteous Father, even though the world does not know you, I know you, and these know that you have sent me. I have made known to them your name, and I will continue to make it known that the love with which you have loved me may be in them, and I in them. So we're going to finish today this great prayer of Jesus as he has been praying in 17, 1 through 5. He has prayed for himself. Um, from verse 6 to verse 19, he has prayed for the 11, though there are great implications for us as well in regard to prayer. But he specifically is praying for those who will come after the apostles, who will believe in their testimony about who Jesus is. So this last aspect of this is connected to the church in Jesus' prayer for the church. Um, for those who would believe after the 11 in verses 20 through 26. Charles Swindoll in his uh, commentary connected with uh, John's gospel um, had a story in there, and I thought it was fitting for us as we begin today. He wrote about um, Josephus, Josephus, actually a Jewish historian, wrote about this. When Alexander the Great was marching toward uh, Jerusalem... The citizens of that city were incredibly in terror, grimly aware of the might of Alexander's army and the trail of blood that had splattered along the way coming into Israel and to Jerusalem. So Josephus, if I can say that right, um, recounts the details of that moment when the Greeks came face to face with the Jews outside of Jerusalem. So the high priest was there. He was surrounded with other many priests around him and other citizens, and they were all dressed in white. The high priest was wearing kind of a headdress that had, had um, the name of God on top of it um, on a golden plate. Alexander stopped his army, and he walked up to the high priest, intrigued by the name that was there on the high priest's uh, head. And so Alexander told the priest that he had dreamed of that very scene, that he was now experiencing. And so from an old sheath, the high priest drew drew out a very old scroll. He showed Alexander this scroll. It was Daniel's book. And he showed him in Daniel chapter 7 and Daniel chapter 8. It was written 200 years before that the Greeks would overtake the Persians and would become the dominant power and that this one who was mighty would come. And so as he's reading this and looking at this... um, he is seeing himself, Alexander is, not, not a believer, but he's seeing in himself, in a, in a sense, a reflection in the prophecy that the Greeks would come to power. And so in a very significant moment for himself of awe and understanding, 
He spared Jerusalem the onslaught of what he was going to do with it. Now, Alexander the Great was not a follower and long waiting for the coming of the Messiah, that the Jewish, he wasn't a, a worshiper of Yahweh, he was a pagan king. But he saw himself in that text in Daniel 7 and 8. And what I want to emphasize to us this morning is this, is we need to see ourselves in verses 20 through 26. We need to see that these are words that Jesus is praying for all future believers after the eleven. So these are words that that should comfort us and should lift us today um, to see that Christ was praying for us even a long time ago. I don't know if you noticed when we read through a while ago, there's emphasis on the world. And so Jesus is going to talk about the Father loved him before the foundation of the world. He's also going to talk about that through our unity, the world will come to see that Jesus has been sent by the Father to us. And so there's emphasis on that. So this is a This is a prayer, an aspect of the text here in regard to the gospel proclamation and also connected to the Great Commission. So this is, in a sense, a Great Commission prayer for those who would come to believe through the Apostles' testimony. And I want to take just a moment um, to share with you, utilizing the third W in our W4, where we look at the common words and things that are repetitive and, and things that are emphasized In these verses, seven verses, verses 20 through 26, there are 43 specific references in verses 20 through 26, either to the Father or to Jesus or them talking about we and us, talking about the unity that's there. And so just in seven verses, Jesus gives a great emphasis in regard to the Father and himself. 17 specific references Jesus makes to the Father by using Father, you, and your name. And then the word I, Jesus uses 24 times. And then again, he uses the word us and we uh, as well. And so this is a God-centered sermon, sermon, prayer. In a sense, he's kind of preaching as well as he's praying. But this is a God-centered sermon. And so I just want to remind us this morning that as Jesus is praying here, we can look back to the whole of the Old Testament and the New Testament. And the emphasis in the scripture is that God's people are praying people. You go all the way back to the prophet Samuel, a righteous judge and prophet in Israel. In 1 Samuel chapter 2, or 12, 23, he writes, Far be it from me that I should sin against the Lord in ceasing to pray for you. Jesus taught us that we should pray and never give up and not lose heart. Paul instructed with various words that for the churches we should, through supplications, prayers, intercessions, and giving thanks, we should pray for people and for leaders. To the church at Colossae, Paul said we should continue steadfastly in our prayer and be watchful in thanksgiving. James writes that we should, we have not because we ask not. And so the encouragement's there that we ought to pray and we ought to ask God for certain things. To the church in Ephesus, Paul wrote that we should pray always with all prayer and supplication in the Spirit. And so the emphasis for us is that we should be praying people. So in this prayer, Jesus is praying. Again, 1 through 5, he prays for himself. 6 through 19, he prays specifically for the 11. And now 20 through 26, he prays for all future believers. So let's go now to verse 20, and let's look at the second point this morning. Everything's going to be centered around gospel mission because that's what Jesus is praying for. 
that through the testimony of the eleven, that the gospel would go forth, the church would be established. And so everything about this prayer is, is connected to gospel proclamation and the good news of mission. So verse 20, read, follow along with me again as we read that. So I do not ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word. So the second thing I want to see this morning is that the gospel mission is that we would share through gospel proclamation or personal proclamation. So notice at the very end of verse 20, he says that they, uh, for those who will believe in me through their word. So I want to talk about the 11 just for a moment longer and make some application to our lives. So he begins verse 20, he says, I do not ask for these only. Again, a direct reference to the 11, but also, he says, to those that are going to come in the future who will come to believe through their testimony. And I want to highlight this about the 11. They are deeply trusted by Christ to carry on the work that he has established. It's going to be entrusted to 11. We know that women were also following around as well. The women are the first ones who come to the tomb. So there's a, just a small group of people in the beginning who are believing, following, and waiting for the coming of the Spirit. And they will be the ones who are sharing the gospel and, and giving testimony to who Christ is. And so the gospel was entrusted to people. Now, when you get a snapshot of them on this night, you kind of go, God, could you have not found some more sure-footed people who kind of understood everything? Um, because they are shaky even on this night. If you remember, Jesus has said, I'm going away, and they're worried about it. And so he has to say to them, men, don't worry about this. It's for your good that I'm going away. They're still wrestling with some of the things that he's been telling them. But I want you to know that what Christ says here, they are going to get it. They are going to come around. They're going to come to a firm understanding, and they are going to be the ones who will establish by gospel proclamation that Jesus Christ is the only way to salvation. They will get it. And he is entrusting to the eleven this testimony to begin to establish the churches and to get the gospel out. And so Jesus trusts these men. So as a matter of fact, I just will emphasize this as well. This prayer of Jesus in verse 20 was fulfilled in their great missionary work. And let's just be honest this morning. Do you know if you, if you know Christ and salvation has come to your life, do you know why you are here in Christ this morning? Because of these 11 men. They were faithful by proclaiming, and even the women that were a part of that, and proclaiming the early church people, sharing the gospel. And it started with Jesus, his investment in these 11 men. So this is a, this prayer in verse 20 is a fulfillment. As a matter of fact, I'll just say this. The longest effectual prayer, when I say effectual prayer, it means this. It means something that continues to produce results. This is the longest effectual prayer that has ever been prayed. It has been being fulfilled over the last 2,000 years. He's praying here that through the testimony of the 11, believers in the future would come to believe. And until Jesus is done with the earth and, and it's burned up by fire and we are living in his presence, he will continue to do this. He will continue to answer this prayer. He will continue 
to produce results. So it began with them, and it began with their proclamation of Christ and the gospel, and it was connected with Jesus' prayer that through their testimony, people would believe. So we trust them. Secondly, it just indicates Jesus' love for future believers. We are loved today. We know this, that his salvation has come to us. His love has come to us through their testimony. Faith comes from hearing, Romans 10, 17, and hearing through the word of Christ. So not only is Jesus trusting these men with the gospel, but we see that the gospel has come to us indicating God loved us and we have come into relationship with Him. And so here Jesus in verse 20 is praying for every future believer that comes to faith in Christ. Not only is this a prayer of salvation, but it's also a prayer that's connected to sanctification. We will learn things from the eleven. Mistakes they've made. Great victories that they had. How they started churches. How they wrote things and how God used them. And so all followers throughout church history would go through some of the same things that the apostles went through in this great work of Christ that he did in their hearts. And so again, here Jesus trusts these men. Jesus' love for all future believers is seen in this prayer that we would come to faith in him. And so again, this prayer has been and will be answered for everyone who will believe. You know, we look around at our world today and we just go, is Jesus about to come back? Just the chaos and the craziness. It could be another 200 years. It could be another 500 years. It could be another thousand years and however long it is until he comes back listen to this this prayer that he prays in verse 20 will continue to be answered people like us will tell the gospel people will hear it god will awaken their heart they will come into salvation this is a significant prayer it undergirds the gospel it undergirds the great commission it undergirds mission this prayer that jesus prays so I'm praying it all began with 11. We have way more than 11 in here. And there's way more than 11 all over the planet today alive in Christ who have come to faith. And they've come to faith because of gospel proclamation. Now let me remind you, I know, I know we're so familiar with these words and we're a missional-minded church. And so we share these words from time to time. But let me just remind us that Jesus also thirdly this morning modeled the gospel proclamation as the means toward mission. His last words are really important for us to embrace and contemplate on. Last things that he said to the 11 before he went into heaven. So let me remind us, Matthew 28, 19. Go, therefore. And as you go, this is what I want you to do. I want you to make disciples of all the nations. And as you go and you make disciples of the nations, I want you to baptize them in the name of the Father. Note the emphasis here. Don't lose the emphasis. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. We're going to come back to that idea here in just a moment that's connected to this prayer. So as you go and you make disciples and you baptize them and they get an identity with the Father, the Son, and the Spirit, I want you to teach them to observe all the things that I've been telling you and teaching you and communicating to you over the last three years. I want you to do that. And as you do that, I want to remind you that I'm with you always. You're never going to be alone. So you're going to go into some places and you're not going to be alone. You're going to proclaim the gospel. People are going to believe. You're not going to suffer persecution. And there's going to be this move of God. Some places you're going to go and you're going to proclaim the gospel and it's going to be different than that other city. They're going to drag you out. They may stone you. They may lock you up. But I just want to remind you, I am with you always. There's not going to be ever a moment in your life as you live proclaiming the gospel 
in the good news of who I am and all that I have done, as you go and do that, I remind you that I will be with you forever. Now, I want to just take one more moment before we move on to the next point this morning to give some emphasis, maybe to encourage us this morning. So the last part of verse 20 says, through their word. There is so much hope in this verse. So I ask you just to think on this, and I've already hinted at it a moment ago. Here we have men who on this night are still a bit confused. They still lack some understanding. In just a little bit, Jesus, Judas is going to betray Jesus. Jesus is going to be arrested. Do you remember what the eleven did, what they all did? They fled. They ran away. They don't stay. Now Peter kind of does something, but then he runs away. And then later he denies. And so these are men who, who've been worried on this night that Jesus says, look, I'm leaving you. So these are guys that are even on this night wrestling with things. In the moment, it doesn't look like they are going to, to be the most confident people to entrust the gospel with. But let me remind you of what we've all come to know. When your life gets transformed by the resurrected Jesus, and there's a power that comes into our life, we begin to understand it and things become clearer and we live differently. And that's exactly what happened with them. They become unbelievably bold, confident people. And they take the gospel. They begin, it starts in Jerusalem and it goes to Judea, then it goes to Samaria, and it goes to the furthest most parts of the world. I find encouragement in that because I look at me in the mirror sometimes and realize um, i got a long ways to go. There's still things to learn. There's still depth that needs to come. There's still light of Christ that needs to invade some of the darkness in my life. And I'm encouraged today that God uses people like them and God uses people like us. He entrusted them with the gospel. And we are here today because of that. Let's look at the third thing this morning. Look with me in verse 21. This goes back to what we saw a while ago about the oneness and and our identity in the Trinity, the Father, the Son, and the Spirit. So verse 21, that they may all be one just as you, Father. Now, let's, let's go slow. Make sure, note the emphasis here. That they, the church, those that come to believe, that they may all be one. Just as you, Father, are in me, and I in you, that they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. I want to talk about oneness just for a moment in regard to what Jesus is emphasizing here. Now we know in the Gospels and also in the letters that we are instructed and commanded to forgive one another, to be patient with one another, to bear with one another. All of us have aspects of our life that can rub other people wrong. We have people in our life where they can rub us wrong and we have to forgive, we have to bear with one another, we have to try to come to agreement and understanding with one another. Jesus here in this context is not talking about those kind of things that we we have this great agreement together as far as like getting along. Jesus is emphasizing something different here. That we would be as... The Father and Son are. Now let me remind us what we've seen all through John's Gospel. So I remind us that Jesus over and over, beginning in John chapter 5, began to say words like this. And it permeated all the way through. Here we are in 
John chapter 17. So for 12 chapters or 13 chapters now, Jesus has been emphasizing this. I say what the Father says. When I see what the Father's doing, I join and I do what the Father does. So what the Father wants me to teach, that's what I teach. Where the Father is at work, I go and I'm at work. And so I don't do anything unless, the fa- unless I see the Father doing this. And so this intimacy between the Father and the Son indicates their incredible oneness. Now we know that we don't separate, because you can't do that, you can't separate the Holy Spirit from that. But the emphasis from Christ has been over and over the unity between the Father and the Son. That unity cannot be divided. And so as Jesus is praying here, that is the idea of what Jesus is praying here. Yes, we are to get along. Yes, we are to forgive one another. Yes, we are to listen to one another. But the emphasis here is this, is that we would get to a place as the church. This is really important. Please hear this. It is really important that we get to the place of the church, as the church, as God's people, where God's purposes, His intentions, His commandments become our very unified purpose. That what God values is what we value. We don't value things and ask God to value those things. God values things. He sets things forth. And they are unified in their mission together. The unified mission is the Father sent Jesus to come here to reveal the Father, to redeem us. In other words, the gospel is why Jesus came to establish the good news. That there is salvation now that's permanent. It's not connected to a high priest once a year going into the holy places. It's not connected to animals' blood. It is connected now that God Himself has come. And He lays His life down. He sheds His blood in the unified purpose of God to bring redemption and the glory of God in that redemption. That is the purpose. Listen, that is the purpose on which we must be unified. And I hope you hear that this morning. That's what Jesus is praying. So that means this, this, there are a lot of causes that are important that I think are near and dear to the heart of God that we should have. A lot of them, a number of things. I think the gospel has great implication about a number of things. But there is one cause, and, and some of these other things, because of some of the way, sometimes the way that we're wired, we have a, a deeper passion for those things, but I I want us to see the emphasis of what Jesus is praying here. There is one cause that must be the greater cause among all everything, and that is the gospel. It is the highest priority, is that the gospel is the highest priority, and that we would, as Jesus prays here, that we would look at it again, that they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me, I am in you, that they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. So the model is, for us as the church, is to look at the Trinity. What is the great cause? What is the great passion? What is the great desire of the Father, Son, and the Spirit? It's that God would be revealed and its glory would be known by people from every language and every tribe and every nation in every people group. That is the great heart of God, that His glory would be known to people. So for us in our lives, when there are significant moments that happen in the world, 
in a culture, one of the things that should happen in our lives is that we continue to stay connected to what is deep and dear to the heart of God, and that's the gospel. That the gospel drives us as, as the gospel flows out of the very nature and the heart of God. Now, let me bring some application to kind of where we've been over the last couple of years. So the last couple of years, just particularly our American culture, I know globally, but let's just talk about um, our American culture. So we've had a global pandemic that's had great devastation upon our country with a lot of sickness and hospitalization and death. We've gone through a really rough political season um, over a year ago. We've had, in the midst of all of that, perspectives and Christians on, and I'm talking about Christians, not just, but but Christians on what do we do about aspects of the pandemic. Christians have fought about masks and not masks. Christians have had fought about vaccination and not vaccination and when do we do this and not, and just, there's just been a lot of things over the last two years, a lot of things. And when things like this happen, what the church ought to do is we must not get connected to all of those things, even though those things, it's okay to have an opinion and a thought about those things. But what I want to do is I want to remind us that we cannot ever lose our focus on what is the great cause of our lives, and that's the gospel. We should not allow those things to drive wedges between us. It's okay to have some differing opinions on some things, but it's not okay for us to lose focus that the heart of God was, the Father was to send the Son to reveal the glory of the Father, for the Son to lay His life down and to rise again on the third day, and then to ascend, to sit at the right hand of His Father, and then for the Spirit to come. This is the heart of the gospel, the glorious work of the Trinity, and this must be our deep passion. So as Jesus is praying here, yes, it is important that we work on agreeing together. But it is absolutely important that we unite in the gospel purpose of being as God, that what God values, which is His glory going out to redeem people through the Son, that that is our high value and it becomes our great passion. So we must have shared passion, convictions that are connected to the gospel and connected to theology. So this, this shared oneness with God happens when we abide in Him and we walk in Him and we make sure that the Word is our great passion. And so God the Father, God the Son, God the Spirit, they become the model of what this oneness looks like. Now it's hard sometimes when you know people and, and they, you know, they think this and they think that and then I think this and, and we, can kind of, we can kind of have our firm plants on you know, stances on certain things. But I just, I just, I want to, I want to remind us this morning, those things are okay. But there is something we cannot compromise on. And that is the heart of God in getting the gospel to people so that they would come to know the glory of who Christ is. And so, so that's the heart of God to get the gospel out. 
that people would know about Jesus. And so Jesus' prayer here in verse 21 is that we, as God's body, as his body, that our values, our passion would align with his passion. And again, not asking him to come over to our camp, but that we stand firm on what he's talking about here. Why is that? Why? Why is that important? Look at the end of 21. This is why it's important. So I'm going to read all of it, but I'm going to emphasize the end of 21. That they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they may also be in us for this purpose. Look, so that the world may believe that you've sent me. We can make a big deal about stuff that is not as big a deal maybe to God and we can fight over those things and the world looks in and the world says, what's up with y'all? And so what I want to remind us, the way that the world knows that we belong to God and we have been transformed by God is that our oneness is connected to the gospel mission to share the glory of Jesus. So this unity begins, this oneness begins at salvation. Well, we are in him, he is in us. And also continues as we grow to a place of maturity that we come to firm conviction about things so that in our maturity that when somebody comes and proclaims something and it's something fresh and it doesn't sound right but a bunch of people are following it and reading it and going there and listening to it, we recognize that we're not to be blown and tossed by the wind, by, by cunning things. And so Paul writes it this way, that this unity that leads us to Christian maturity is connected to the oneness. So Ephesians 4.12, to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for the building up of the body of Christ, until we all attain to the unity of the faith and, to the, and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, so that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine that comes by human cunning and by craftiness of deceitful schemes. Now, I hope you've heard my heart here. But I want to make sure if you didn't hear my heart, that you hear my heart, okay? So smile, okay? All right. Again, we have our passionate things that are gospel-centered things. They are. Abortion. Near and dear to the God, God's heart. Protection of the family. Near and near to God's heart. Marriages staying together. Near and dear to God's heart. So we can have, our, we can have these things. And again, they are, they are God-ordained things, I think. But I just want to remind us, the answer to abortion, the answer to family, the answer to the gender issue, the answer to all the things, the answer to it all is the gospel. That's the answer to it all. So our great passion can't get distracted, even though 
the things that are near and dear to God's heart. We want the gospel to be our passion. And when the gospel is planted in places, what does the gospel do? It brings transformation. It brings answers to all of these things of confusion. It's the answer to the lies that the world proclaims. And so that's what, I, that's what Jesus is praying here. This is, what, this is what we need to be reminded of, that we would be one in, in what God the Father and God the Son and God the Spirit hold dear, which is the gospel. And so we hold the gospel incredibly, incredibly dear. Here's the fifth thing. I think it's, are we in point five? We're in point four. Y'all don't want me to skip point four. Let's talk about point four just for a moment. 22 and 23. The gospel mission is grounded in the glory of God. This is amazing. So look what he says in 22. The glory that you have given me, look what he says there. I have given to them so that they may be one, even as we are one. Again, look at that emphasis. I in them, 23, and you in me, that they may become perfectly one so that the world may know that you sent me and love them even as you love me. Now I want to talk about the glory of God just for a moment. This is incredible. Listen to what Jesus is praying here. Father, when I came on mission, you sent me here. And I came as a man and this glory, he, Jesus has infinite glory. But there's a glory that was in his incarnation that came. And so here he is. So he says, the glory that you have given me, I've now given it. I've given it to them. How incredible is that? God's righteous, incredible, majestic, awesome glory has been given to believers who have come to faith in Christ. And so this glory that is mine, I have given to them. And so every one of us who are in the faith this morning We have been given the glory of God. It is ours. It is in us. It has been granted unto us. And so so Peter came to know this later. He wrestles with it on this night. He's going to deny the Lord during this night after Jesus' arrest. He's going to be brokenhearted. But then there's going to be a, a restoration that Jesus gives him in John chapter 21. He's going to be filled with the Spirit on the day of Pentecost. He's going to step into the streets on the day of Pentecost. He's going to preach out loud. He's going to, he's going to do what Jesus had been doing. And he's going, to, he's going to birth the church through gospel proclamation of the story of who Jesus is. And as he does this, in the decades to come, as Jesus leaves and he walks spiritually with Jesus, he comes to this incredible realization. And so he writes to these persecuted believers who've lost their homes and they've been scattered, they've lost property, and they've had to flee. And he reminds them of something incredible, and this is what he reminds them of. Second Peter 1.3, God's divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness. Does everybody in the room know this morning that we have been given everything that we need for life and godliness? Everything that we need. How do we get? How, how, how do we? How do we know that? How, how does that come to us? Listen, to what he says here: His divine power is granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness. How? Here's what he says: Through the knowledge of Him, 
who called us to his own glory and excellence, by which he has granted to us his precious and very great promises. Now hear this. One of the other things that's significant about this prayer is that now the church goes and proclaims the glory of Christ through public proclamation, united, uniting our hearts and God's heart was that the gospel would go forth and people would be saved. They would be brought into the kingdom of God. Churches would be started. And in those places where the glory of God is proclaimed through proclamation, God gets the glory in every single salvation. And so as, I, as we've said, our interest becomes God's interest. And there's a great passion that's there. And so we begin to line up with what God values so much. And He values that His glory would go forth. Um, After we're done with John, we're going into the book of Habakkuk. And there's a great verse in the book of Habakkuk where he says, where where God's speaking and he tells Habakkuk, listen, the glory of the Lord is going to cover just like the the water covers the oceans and covers the seas. The glory of the Lord one day is going to cover the whole earth. It's going to go forth. And this is God's heart. God wants His glory to get to the furthest place, the most remote place, and that people there would know that there's a loving God who cares about them. This is near and dear to God's heart. And so Jesus is praying here, Father, the glory that you've given me, I have given to them and I've given it to them that they may be one, even as you and I are one, I and them and you and me, that they may become perfectly one. For this purpose, again, notice this, for this purpose, so that the world may know. They would know through them that there's a God who has been sent and His name is Jesus and that they would come to know that they are loved by you and they are loved by me. And so this prayer of Jesus is for us, for our interests to become God's interests. God's interests are our deep passion that his words would become our sole guide, not man's words and not man's wishes, and that we would seek to participate in gospel proclamation. We prize what the Trinity prizes. That's, that's where our values lie. And the gospel is it. The gospel is everything. It's everything about the glory of who Christ is. And so God's heart is that his glory would go to the furthest most parts of the world, and it would go next door. And it would be inside of our homes. This is, this is the gospel mission. It is grounded in the glory of God. You know, it's interesting about Jesus. He never, fought, he never fought the Father over any plan, any purpose, any word, any persecution, any injustice toward him. When he wrestles in the Garden of Gethsemane, what does he end up doing? He aligns his life with the Father. Not my will, Father, but your will. His life was in the Father and the Father was in him. So there was no break. There was no division between the Father and the Son. Every aspect of the relationship was in order. And his prayer was that we would live joined together just like they lived joined together in the mission that they prized, that they held was most important. Between the Father and the Son, there was no fighting for position or rank. No envy among them for the greater name and greater place. Nor do they ever downplay the significance of the other. 
as well as one being jealous of the other. We saw a chapter ago, Jesus said, the Father who is greater than I, just giving honor to the Father. Jesus is pretty great, right? Look what Jesus, you know, look at me. He's like, no, the Father. And they, they, they honor one another and they make much of one another. The Spirit came to do what? To make much of Jesus, that people would come to know Jesus. He's the power to get the gospel out to the nations. The father and son didn't have different ambitions than each other. So Jesus' prayer here is that our lives would, here again, would fall exactly in line with their oneness connected to the gospel. So therefore, we are not to fight for position. Our rights, our view, our greater name. Nor are we to be jealous of one another. We are to live as Paul instructed. Listen to what Paul wrote, Romans 12, 10. Love one another brotherly affection and outdo one another in showing honor. Honor others before ourselves. See, it's only our, in our unity of faith that stands as a strong testimony to the power of the gospel. And it would be more difficult, Jesus is saying here, to reach the world if all they ever see is disunity and fighting among God's people. There is a danger of strife and lack of unity. And so that's why we must be unified on the purpose. Now, sometimes we fight for what's true. But sometimes we have to have the right kind of perspective as well to know that that's, we've all used this phrase probably, that's not a hill that I'm going to die on. But there are some hills to die on. And the gospel is that. That's the hill to die on. It is the great cause of the church that the glory of God through the proclamation of the gospel would go out from the neighborhoods to the nations and that people would know that God has united different unique people who have multiplicity of views about things and he works and he unifies and he does a powerful work just think about the 11 you got to Former tax collector, you got a guy called Simon the Zealot, you've got fishermen, you've got different groups of people from different backgrounds. And what was their great cause? How did they transform the first century? The gospel. The gospel drove them. It's what drove them more than anything else. Now, if you'll remember, they had a controversy. And so in Acts 15, they had this council back in Jerusalem and after they had the council and they're going to go out um, the leaders met and said hey listen as you go out this, this is where we settle on things but I want you to I want, to, I want to remind you take care of the poor later we know that you take care of widows and orphans and there are things where the gospel has great implication about meeting the needs the tangible needs of people so the result of this unity is the last part of verse 23, so that the world may know that Jesus has been sent and that the world would know that we are loved by him. All right, let's look at verse 24. The gospel mission is grounded in the eternal love of the Son by the Father. The Father loves the Son. And so he makes much of the Son so that salvation will come. Now look, let's read 24 again. 
Father, I desire that they also, whom you have given me, may be with me where I am. To see my glory. He's just talked about glory before in verse 23. So, Father, I desire that they also, whom you have given me, may be with me where I am. To see my glory that you have given me, because you love me before the foundation of the world. You know, one of the, it's not old, but to us, things are old. We measure by time. You know, one of the most truthful statements, foundational statements in the, before there was history, is that the Father loved the Son even before the foundation of the world. That the basis of, of this salvation, of this gospel, is grounded in the Father's love of the Son that Jesus says here was before anything was spoken and created. The Father loved the Son. And so the gospel mission is grounded in this great love that Jesus would be the name above all names and the only name by which we may be saved and the only name by which people will know the great glory of the love of the Father who sent the Son, the Son who laid His life down, the Son who was resurrected, the Son who is exalted, the Son who intercedes, the Spirit who came, and then the Son who's going to return again. And His glory is going to cover the earth as the waters cover the sea. Now I want you to note here what Jesus says. Father, I desire. You ever ask yourself the question, what is, what is Jesus' desire? What is, his great des- what is one of His great desires? Well, his great, one of His great desires is prayed here is that we would be where He is, three things. We would be where He is. And that when we are where he is, that we would see his glory and that we would realize the incredible depth of the love that the Father has for the Son. So let me talk about those just for a second, particularly the first two. Listen to this great desire of Jesus, that we would be where he is. Now, what's he talking about? Is he talking about the Garden of Gethsemane? Is he talking about Jerusalem? Is he talking about Israel? No. What's he talking about? heaven, that they may be where I am. This was his great desire. He wants people to be where he will be. He's not there yet, but in a sense he will be there. He's going to be there, and he wants people to be where he is. Guess what happens when Jesus is present? Guess what you see every time Jesus is present? You see God's glory. Let me just... Let me just remind us that when he was here on the earth, you know what they saw? They saw his glory. This is John 1.14. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory. Glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. So they saw his glory. The Mount of Transfiguration, they get to go up on the mountain, and this, he's, he was veiled for a while in skin, but that on the Mount of Transfiguration, that skin was just kind of peeled back in a sense, and they, be, they beheld His glory. This bright light was there. And the Father spoke over the Son, and, and He was transformed. And so they saw His glory here while He was in the flesh, and He did miracles, and He did things. But it, it's also this idea is that we are going to be where He is. Those who come to know Him 
and know the great glory of the gospel and come to faith in Christ, we will be where He is. Christ desires that we would never be separated from Him. So He desires for us to be where He is. And when we get to where He is, what do we see? We see His glory. And I can't wait. How about you? Can't wait to see Him. Can you imagine to see the very scars in our King who died for us and to behold Him and to see Him and to talk with Him and to fall at His feet. And when we see Him, there's going to be this unbelievable transformation. Listen to what John writes in 1 John 3, 2. Beloved, we are God's children now. We're His. But what we will be has not yet appeared. But we know that when He does appear... We shall be like Him because we shall see Him as He is. And everyone who thus hopes in Him purifies himself as He is pure. So He desires that we would be where He is. And when we get to where He is, we see His glory. Jesus' desire was not about them being somewhere on the planet. It was about them being with Him in heaven where we're headed, which is our home. Let's look at the last thing this morning, 25 and 26, that the gospel mission, the aim of it is that the world would know the name, 25 and 26. O righteous Father, even though the world does not know you, I know you. And these know that you have sent me. I have made known to them your name. And I will continue to make it known. That the love with which you have loved me. May be in them. And I in them. Have you noticed the three gifts that he speaks about giving us here? That we would be in him and he in us. That means life. We get life when that happens. He also gives us his glory. And he also here gives us the wonder of knowing his name and the wonder of his love. So we get his glory, we get his love, and we get his life. The name of God is not known by the world. That's why the world has all of the problems that it has. All of these things come about because people don't know the Lord. So sin remains the predominant condition of most of the world. I think I've shared this with you before, but on the, when we would go to Asia, um, the last morning I get up real early in the morning and I, I, I walk the streets of Kathmandu by myself. I don't know if it's the wisest thing, but I do it. And it's in the dark and I, I've got two hours before all the lazy people in the team wake up and get going to take pictures of doors and so I just walk through different sections and I pray and take pictures of doors. I came to this gigantic statue, it was probably 35 foot tall, faces on each side that had been made in some factory somewhere in Asia probably. In the early morning lights, people coming by and getting colored paint and going up to the statue and touching it and bowing and hoping that that statue would speak to them, give them direction, bring healing, 
bring purpose. And I just from time to time like walking that direction and I like watching and I like praying. Um, and my heart's broken every single time. That the world doesn't know that God came in his glory and flesh. It's this incredible thing. He came in his glory and flesh. And he died. And he was risen. And he's entrusted the church that through the word of our testimony to take the message of his glory wherever we can take it. And the world is so lost and broken and this lack of knowledge of God remains the biggest catalyst for the heartache that's found in the world. But I remind us this morning that the biggest catalyst for the healing of the world is for people like you and I to take the gospel starting in our homes and to wherever it is that we go. So the name of God is not known by the world, but knowing the name is the continued focus of Jesus. I want to ask you to look at another verse. Would you go to your left, the book of Psalms, way over to your left? And I want you to go to Psalm 138. And I want to bring all this back full circle of why the unity around... um, that our unity must be connected to God's unity of purpose in regard to the gospel. Psalm 138, verse 2. It's a psalm of David, and he writes, I bow down toward your holy temple and give thanks to your name for your steadfast love and your faithfulness. Now, please note how it finishes, verse 2. For you have exalted above all things your name and your word. For you, God, have exalted above all things your name and your word. All right, now look up here. So the Father, the Son, and the Spirit have two primary great things that they emphasize. Did you see what they were? The name of God and the what? And the word of God. If that's what God has exalted above all things, then what should that be for us? That should be our primary passion. That should be our primary focus. It should be the thing that unites us, not the friends things. Again, that are important, not, not that things are friends. There needs to be a better word, but other things. But the, the greatest thing, the greatest thing is this, is that our, our heart aligns with God's heart. What's God's heart about? What David just wrote, what God's heart's about. That God's name would be known. And God's glory is known in His name. How is His glory known in His name? It's known through the proclamation of the Word of God. So our heart must align with God's heart. What is the gospel about? The gospel is about getting the name of Jesus to people. How do you get the name of Jesus to people? What Jesus told us in Matthew chapter 28, you go and you make disciples. How do you make disciples? Well, you baptize them in the Trinity, this identity, this oneness of God, that people are in God. And then you command them and teach them to obey the things that Jesus... And so. 
So Matthew, Matthew 28, the Great Commission is Psalm 138 too. Our heart is to align with God's heart, which is the glory of God's name and the glory of God's word and the proclamation of who he is in the word must become our great passion. And you see this all through the book of Acts, that they went places and they made much of the name of Jesus. They gave their lives for the name of Jesus and they told the words of Jesus and the stories of Jesus to so many people. I'm going to read this and we'll be through. I'm going to come back to the theme of what is the glory of God? What does that look like? So I want you to listen to this. This is what God's glory looks like. Which, by the way, everything I'm about to read, if you are in Christ, we get to see this one day. Listen to these words. And I saw no temple in the city. For its temple is the Lord God, the Almighty, and the Lamb. And the city has no need of a sun or moon to shine on it. For the glory of God gives it light. And its lamp is the Lamb. And by its light will the nations walk. And the kings of the earth will bring their glory into it. And its gates will never be shut by day. And there will be no night there. They will bring into it the glory and honor of the nations. But nothing unclean will ever enter it. Nor anyone who does what is detestable or false. But only those who are written in the Lamb's book of life. Then the angel showed me a river of water of life. Bright as crystal. Flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb. And through the middle of the street of the city also, on either side of the river, the tree of life with its twelve kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit each month. The leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations, and do the healing of the nations need to happen. What a broken world we have. We need God's healing to come. The nations will be healed one day. No longer, listen to this, no longer will there be anything accursed, But the throne of God and of the Lamb will be in it, and His servants will worship Him. And they will see His face, and His name will be on their foreheads, and night will be no more. And they will have need of no light of lamp or sun, for the Lord God will be their light, and they will reign forever and ever. That's where we're headed. And so I want you to see this. So as Jesus prays these last seven verses, they become the foundation of the Great Commission, the establishment of the church, our avenue pathway to be where he is to see his glory. It's a pretty significant prayer, pretty powerful prayer, effectual continuing to produce results. Let's pray.